How do we do follow-up when he hasn't started yet? I've, I've started. We're recording. This is the show. Oh, so you mean follow-up from prior episodes? Yeah, I've got some follow-up. Oh, cool. First, but first, uh, and guess what the follow-up is. Just take a guess. Just take a guess. It's about speed traps. No, no, Crap. it's it's about yet another way that I've screwed up. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, well, I'm very happy to hear about this. <laughs> Chapter twenty three. I never mind hearing these stories. <laughs> um, program note. Program note. Uh, oral, bah, 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 program note. Or oral argument is going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks. Yeah, this is not the follow up part. No, but I think we should. I'm teasing. Oh, okay. I'm teasing. Got it. The show with the follow-up, which of course is people's favorite part. I know. Corrections. And I I feel teased. So It it appeals to all those people who read newspapers just for the corrections section. (laughs) Right. And then they go to the obits. (laughs) I guess so. Or the For people, they want to know from whom they will no longer be hearing any corrections. Uh, In any event. So, yeah. So, we're going to be... Hiatus. There are exams. There are other things going on. We thought maybe the listeners have... Look, we have some student listeners. Yeah, and we and we want them to be able to uh, feel stress free, not think they're missing anything. Yeah, I mean, you should be the students. You should be studying, not listening to this stupid Don't show. Don't worry, you will not be missing anything <laughs> no. because we're not recording. That's right, we're not recording. Over but the next two weeks, each week, if you follow us on Twitter, we are at Oral Argument on Twitter. Oh, I didn't know that. At Oral Argument, all one word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can like us on Facebook. Uh, Joe is at Get Me Joe Miller on Facebook, and I am at Chris Dorr, of course, on Facebook. Facebook or Twitter? Uh, Twitter. You know what I mean. I was talking the, the, the Twitbook. I'm, I'm talking about the Twitbook. The Twitbook. Look, whatever. L- look under every rock. Yeah, Twitter on Twitter. I'm Chris Dorr. On, on Twitter, you're Get, Get Me, me Joe, Joe Miller. Miller. Yeah. yeah, and that that you know. So so check it out. Um, uh, but on the oral argument Twitter feed, maybe next week when we would ordinarily post a show, I will post a uh, greatest hits version. Oh, no, not, not greatest hits is in. I will go back and edit to get. Don't get me wrong, listeners. <laughs> I'm trying to use a fancy word for rerun. Oh, just okay. maybe this week you want to check this one out. Yeah, that's that kind of thing. A f- a f- you know, a fan fave from the vault. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joe, I got it. I got it. So last week, we, great. Show. Hold on, hold on. I'm still confused though. Is this this? Is, so you're saying. Next week and the week after. So there's a two-week hiatus. There will be two weeks, two two weekends without a show. Okay. And then we're going to return on the 16th of May. Oh, in a big way. In a huge way. Yeah. Huge way. With a, with a guest that is just unbelievably, eye-poppingly, fantastically great, and whose name we will not reveal right now. Because we are not sure? No, we are dead sure. Oh, really? Okay. Um, but because we absolutely do not want to... Uh, spoil the anticipation. Anticipation mm-hmm. is a great form of excitement and fun. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. chew on that. Okay. All right. Smoke so, that. So, this is going to be the best guest, you know, that you can imagine? Is that what you're saying? In the in the past or the present or the future. So, we're going to have Tom York on? This guest is capable of time travel. And mm. so... Yeah. All right. All right. We're getting even nerdier than we normally normally do <laughs> so our guest will be doctor who um <laughs> i you know i don't watch that or some other time lord people tell me i'm an idiot for not watching that. okay let me not an idiot you just I'm have trying, bad taste wh- you're trying can, to correct something people probably can tell that i'm delaying because i said the dumbest thing. i li- so listeners i also am a listener i do listen to the show it's kind of a hair club for men kind of thing uh you know <laughs> you, i do the show and, and i and i do listen to it um <laughs> out, out, out of a sense of duty and obligation um and last week we had. A ter- I listened to it. I for thought fun. it was a terrific show with Kim Kravick. What it a was great show! Awesome. And she uh, and in the show notes you can see she posted a little follow up to it yeah. with uh, some additional thoughts and some materials. It's great. We'll put all that in the show notes, which you can get to at hydrotext.com slash oral dash argument, or just go to hydrotext.com and click on oral argument. And you can uh, see all our shows and, and the show notes. And if you're listening in a podcast app, the show notes should be just right there. Mm. Um, so that'll be there. Um, I, and I thought it was such a great show. And then and then guess what? What? I I use the word subsume Uh to mean pretty much its opposite. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm listening to this. I'm I'm like, who is this idiot? Because, of course, you thought it was me. Then you realized it was you. I knew it right away. If the question is, who is this idiot? I know right away the answer is it's me. (laughs) So I've I've lived long enough, Joe. So you use use subsume when what you meant was supersume. Yeah, well, what I was trying to say, I was trying to do some, probably in my mind, I was thinking like consume and excrete or something. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was thinking like this, these were, this was the issue of, of how in the face of scarcity, society responds by, um, 
paying attention at various times to different values, and then there'll be some kind of crisis. This is the idea of tragic choices that we talked about at the yeah. end of the episode. Right. And and some new value, some some forgotten value will be vindicated because of some crisis, and uh, and old values, which may have been served by the old regime, will be forgotten, lost, not used anymore. Right. And I use the word subsumed for that when really I probably meant submerged and consumed in other, mm. you know, right. basically taken out of the picture and forgotten about. Submerged is probably the word I was looking right. for. Right. Because subsume, you could say it was all being taken care of adequately because a, a, a super category was being attended to. Yeah. And that was just a species where what you were saying was it's suppressed. Yeah. Sub- subsume means use- to include or absorb. Right, rather than suppress. But we, exactly. but the rest of, I mean, you and me and Kim all referred to, I think, in addition to that, we referred to it as a suppressed value. So I think, yeah, I think that is cl- it's clear meaning, what we were talking the, about. It was clear what we were talking about. It was also clear that there was an idiot using a word incorrectly throughout the whole thing. So well, you know, now I've got to I'll go back to and listen to all these episodes to make sure oh. I didn't use words incorrectly. Because well, I need to apologize. Did we if get? I did. did we get any feedback on that? On what? On my incorrect uh, word usage? I didn't see an choice. email about that. Really? No. no. Is anybody listening? <laughs> Yeah, but they they they're going to let it slide. They under they know they what to expect with, from me and what not to expect. They from listen me. with charity and grace, and yeah, so yeah, they know yeah. that you and I might frequently mm-hmm. even screw up particular words, but that our hearts in the right. Place. So we're not doing well in the pedant demo. <laughs> yeah, pedants are not going to enjoy this at all. Mm. They're going to be constantly interrupting. Yeah, my, we got to get my daughter listening to this thing. Fact, she would correct me. We need us. We need to provide some kind of pedant squelch button. So the person can just like go like push the button and it will pre- create static <laughs> until we correct, until we like listen and correct. Right. So you know that what, would be awful. What word am I going to use incorrectly this week? I guess that's the big question. It will be a little embarrassing given the title of this podcast. Yeah. If you're unable to correctly describe the subject of this podcast, we got a big topic this week and a and a big guest. We do. Massive guest. Um, let me just say that. Let's start with the topic. Our guest, Joe. Joe, let me. Can I, wait, can I ask you a question? You can. Joe, what's the name of our podcast? Oral argument. Um, are you sure it's not cyberloquium? I'm positive. Hmm. It is oral argument, and we've talked about many things on the podcast known as oral argument. And yeah. this is this is not leading up to a name change, by the way. No, no. Uh, we've talked about um, we've talked about uh, drugs, organs. Organs. We talked about history, international, about international law. law, free talked, press. Yeah, exactly. Free, uh, free press. We've talked about speed traps. Most importantly, we are the we are the world. We're still the leading authority. We're the leading podcast authority on speed trap law. Right. Yeah, we've talked to we've talked to a number of different about a number of different telecommunications and communications technologies issues. Talked about blogs. Talked about blogs. All kinds of stuff. You know the one, Joe. Let me ask you this: Among all the topics that we haven't talked about, mm. given the name of the show. What what do you think we should talk about? I think it would be interesting to talk about um, oral argument as a legal process. So this is the one about oral argument. Whoa. Mm. You're blowing me away with your amazing magic. And our guest, who is expert, I would say expert in oral argument. Indeed. Oh, I think there's no question of that. He's going to give us, he's a practicing litigator. Yes. Very busy. He yes. Can give us, he, he's uh, able to give us 30 minutes, so we're going to call him up. And talk with him for half an hour. Exciting. Um, and, the, you know, the term is still going on. That's true. There are arguments next week. Yeah, so, so it's unbelievable. I mean, uh, um, that he's able to uh, share this time with us. So Yeah. Hello. Hey there. How are you? I'm doing great. This is Christian Turner. I've got Joe hey, Miller Christian. here. And this is Tom? Yeah, this is Tom Goldstein. Indeed. Thank you for oh, joining I, us, Tom. My pleasure. Uh, I don't know if I should be able to see you, but I can't. No, 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 no. This is just an audio-only thing. It's how we Great. we maximize the uh, audio quality ah, <laughs> for for audio-only podcast. Sure. Um, so, Tom, you are uh, uh, a well-known uh, Supreme Court litigator, one of the founders or co-founders of SCOTUS Blog. Well, my my mother does assure me that I'm well-known. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one of the co-founders with my wife, Amy Howe, who is our editor. And you have, I mean, I, I take it, and we're going to talk about oral argument today, but uh, you've argued in front of uh, appellate courts and the Supreme Court, many, many courts, uh, and lots of speaking engagements. And so I've got, got one question for you right off the bat. 
Yeah. When you got the email from Joe that you were going to appear on this show, did you feel like you'd finally arrived? I thought that, you know, (laughs) previously I thought it was the Daily Show Mm. that um, basically would be the pinnacle. Uh, And you just don't want to, you know, you don't want to set your dreams too high. Right. But now... I'm thinking about hanging it up. After. Yeah, <laughs> awesome, awesome. It's it's not. It, it wouldn't be a bad. Is there anything we can do to put you at ease? I don't know if you feel if you feel <laughs> no, the nerves. I think, I think all the Xanax I just took will handle it. <laughs> uh, well, so we we, we I, I'm sure you're familiar with the show. Probably heard all the episodes. But let me just tell you. So we, we're called oral argument. Uh, yeah. We've been talking to uh, a bunch of different law professors over uh, the first 17 episodes, lots of different topics. It's been really Nobody interesting. Nobody knows more about the pragmatic practice of law than law professors. Of course not. Indeed. Of course not. So, well, that we, we have been talking about lots of interesting topics, but we have not. You're the first uh, practicing lawyer. I mean, some of the people we've talked to have done, um, you know, ha- continue to do some amount of practice. But, uh, you know, you're the, you're the first real practitioner, and uh, and we haven't yet done a show about oral argument. And so we thought, you know, let's just go straight to the top. Uh, <laughs> and those folks were unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> that's we went through the Rolodex, and, yes, and we exactly. went to the second Rolodex, and you, <laughs> your name came up, and finally landed here. Yeah, I said, "Who's this Goldstein dude?" And Joe said he'd seen a website, and so here you are. Yeah, um, there you go. Uh, but I, I kind of want to get into, um, you know, obviously people think differently about oral argument and and what it's for and if it's any good and uh yeah. and and if it if it actually changes the results and if it doesn't change results is it nonetheless a valuable part of uh of appellate practice yeah. and and another set of questions involves whether uh appellate argument before or oral argument before the supreme court is a totally different beast than in federal appellate courts or state courts uh you know, Judge Posner said the Supreme Court's not even really a court <laughs> in a way. It's a, so it's a different kind of animal. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure to, where to get started with all this, but maybe I'd just like to ask you, how do you think uh, of oral argument when you were preparing for it? Do you also do the briefs? Uh, how do you weigh the importance of it relative to other parts of the practice? How do, you, how do you think of it? Well, I'm a believer that you have to think about oral argument in different courts. Um in part because different courts are tackling purely legal versus factual questions. So the judges are going to have stronger legal views than an understanding of the record if they're more into the facts. In part because (coughs) in different courts, different judges spend different amounts of time getting ready for the case. Uh, In part because in different courts, different judges use oral argument for different purposes, um, including particularly whether they're trying to explore the case themselves or instead persuade their colleagues on multi-member panels. So that, I think, is, you know, uh, uh, the axis across you have to, which you have to kind of look. I mostly do the Supreme Court, and so most of my thinking is about that court, and there, and we can talk about it in any level of detail, um, my sense of oral argument is pretty modest, that you cannot think you're going to try and accomplish much in oral argument, and that it's much less important than uh, is the briefing, which yeah. is really where the action is at. And before we get into the, um, you know, the different models and understandings of oral argument, just as a kind of a top line question. Yeah. Do you think that the, that in practice uh, people in fact, uh, or lawyers in fact, waste a lot of money and resources preparing for oral argument um, relative to its importance? Well, so long as none of my clients are ever going to listen to this. (laughs) Despite what we said at the beginning, no one listens. No, no. Um, Waste is, is maybe the wrong word, but an understandable idea. And that is, it's astonishing the proportion of time that's spent on getting ready for oral argument vis-a-vis the briefs. Right. Uh, Particularly in courts where the briefs are kind of the be-all, end-all, like the Supreme Court. Because the briefs are 20 times important, you could see yourself spending 20 times as much time. But oral argument is the public show and really the determinant of the lawyer's professional reputation more than the briefs. And so a humongous amount of time goes into oral argument preparation. And you also can't 
kind of compare it one to one in terms of time to return on investment because oral argument in, in particularly in courts that are very active is super duper harder than writing a brief because of the huge number of questions that can come your way, the kind of traps you can fall into. When you have control over every word that's spoken, it's not that hard, and you do in your brief. Uh, but oral argument can be a, a tricky business, even if what you're trying not to do, as you frequently are, is not lose your case, even if you can't manage to win it at oral argument. Yeah, my experience in, um, you know, uh, when I was in practice, you know, preparing partners for state Supreme Court arguments or, or appellate arguments is, uh, you know, it's when you move from the briefs to oral argument that the percentage of time billed by partners tends to go way up because yeah. they're preparing for it. Uh, yeah. And and as you say, um, it's not clear whether, you know, it, well, a lot of that preparation may protect certain reputational interests that the lawyers have um, yeah. more, more than it advances uh, the client's cause. Although, you know, you would... I think most lawyers would think of it as a kind of derogation of duty to get up there and, and not know the case and make a fool of oneself uh, uh, just uh, for the client. But but maybe in a way, uh, since a lot of lawyers, I don't know, they maybe they think of it as, as fun and um, a lot a lot of people enjoy it. It is the show. One one model of oral argument is that it is a form of attorney compensation. Hmm. Well, the, the, the clients might think that, but the lawyers sure don't. Yeah. Um, the lawyers you know, fully bill it. it. There is a, you know, an interesting dynamic in the law firm context where a lot in some firms, larger firms, particularly where there are larger teams, you know, the partner may in effect have to relearn the case as you get to oral argument or learn it for the first time. Um, because other people have been engaged in the case. I'm a big believer that the person who writes the brief needs to argue the case yeah. because in the course of writing the brief, you're making all kinds of strategic and tactical judgments that need to be carried through right. and you need to kind of live those and understand what the choices that were made and those sorts of things. So, you know, we here, we're such a tiny little law firm that we never really have more than two people working on a brief. Now, this is uh, this question about brief writing and um, by the way you have someone there it sounds <laughs> this this is this is our uh, this this is my dog darcy who makes an appearance in every episode excellent of, in fact, some of episode. our reviews say that they would like to hear more darcy and i'm, I'm not sure what that says about us but, i don't think they'll uh, say that well, about says that, the, says that the show has gone to the dog <laughs> i don't think they'll say that about today's episode however no, um, no. that they want more darcy um so your your um your statement about the briefing and the role of the briefing and how it's good and in fact, in some sense, optimal for the person who's the chief brief writer to be the person to argue um, raises an issue that was that I was thinking about in preparation for this morning, which is about um, oral argument in the age of so many amici, um, yeah. and which is, I think, the Supreme Court. I mean, in the in a few arguments, I've heard Justice Breyer mention, you know, I read all forty two amicus briefs mm. or, or what have you. Um, and for non lawyer listeners, these these are briefs written by people who are are not parties. Right, uh, but, they're, but they're friends of the court. The court the made him helpful, yeah. Right, um, and what's what's interesting is that the the reason why your your comment prompted me to think again about this is because in a sense, when you get up to argue, you have to argue about so many things that you had no hand in writing, and in fact, you might wish no one had said, but <laughs> but the court might be thinking about it, and in and and, uh, and it does seem the justices routinely ask counsel for the parties, what they think about such-and-so's amicus brief. It can, it can happen. It, I would say that at the Supreme Court, there are amicus briefs that have tremendous influence, just as you're suggesting. That is the exception that proves the rule that most of the amicus briefs are highly repetitive of what the parties are saying and don't really help the court that much. But the exceptions are significant ones, and they, they can make a real difference. I would say, as an advocate, uh, you really need to own the whole case and all of the theories in the briefing as much as in the oral argument. And so, while it's true that an oral argument can cover issues that are raised by the amici, so too you ought to be trying very hard to, if there are good arguments that amici have made or are going to make that you can anticipate you should be dealing with them in the briefing. So I don't think it's it's necessarily a point that's intrinsic to oral argument. 
Uh, so in writing your own brief, you ought to be anticipating or maybe in your reply brief, you have an oppor- if you're the petitioner, you have an opportunity to say something about something that's gone on in the amicus briefing. Well, yeah, that's true for either side, right? The respondent can re- answer the petitioner's amici in the respondent's opening brief, and the petitioner can respond to the respondent's amici in the petitioner's reply. And I, I take it, too, that in, you know, it, at least in big cases and maybe in, in not-so-big cases, uh, there is at least some amount of coordination because amici can argue to overrule a case when the main briefs might argue for, you know, a, an inter- a favorable interpretation of it. Um, and this all goes to what the purposes of the litigation are, I take it. Sure. So it's absolute. there's often confusion about amicus briefs. So we're, we're on an important point that's not, again, not related to oral argument, but is important. And that is in amicus filings, the amici frequently get super nervous about kind of what level of engagement they can have with the party because they know they're supposed to be independent. But I think courts in general and the Supreme Court certainly actually appreciate a high level of coordination because they don't want to read the same brief five times. Yeah. <laughs> they want right. the amici to do something different. And so if you can talk – if you're an amicus and you can talk to the party and say, look, what are you not covering that I can helpfully do, then that's all to the good. <clears throat> it's much more likely that your brief will be read when you do that because otherwise – you know, the reader, the just judge, justice, law clerk picks it up and says, oh, God, this is just the same thing as the party brief. I'm going to spend two minutes reading this thing. Let, let me let me shift to uh, just getting your take on on what the right model is for thinking about oral argument and, and how this depends on courts. Because I, the two dominant models that I think people are familiar with, and you've already alluded to them, you know, one is that oral argument is just kind of the search for the truth. It's an It's a chance for parties to make their cases in ways that maybe weren't made in the briefs or to respond to question real questions that judges have and and this kind of matches up with kind of a a legalistic as other people have used it uh, understanding of courts you know um, whereas a more realistic view is maybe that uh, judges use the parties to talk to one another at oral argument that this is a uh, and I think uh, there's a article we'll link up uh Epstein, Landis, and Landis, and, and Posner on um, it's an empirical study, but it, you know it is good at making this point that it's it's in a way a low cost way for the judges to talk to one another because it's not the judges themselves arguing with one another, but kind of using the lawyers as intermediaries to do this. Well, uh, I mean, you say it's low, co- low cost in one sense. On the other hand, it's the height of inefficiency in a really stupid way of doing it um, because. Sorry, my phone is ringing in the background. Hopefully. No worries. Do you need to get it? Uh, no, no, no. Um, <clears throat> the one would think that a more efficient way of talking to each other would be to talk with each other, uh, right? <laughs> Have yeah, a meeting and, and just, talk to each other. Yeah. Right. They're in the same building, after all. So it is a, in the Supreme Court. It's a super weird thing where we file the briefs, the justices and the law clerks think about them, their bench memos and the like, meetings in chambers, yada 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 yada. The only people who don't talk to each other in the process are the justices who are going to decide the case to kick around ideas, see what they're thinking. So their only real chance to have any kind of focused discussion on the case with each other is oral argument because afterwards they vote, you know, two days later or in cases argued on Tuesday, one day later, and they just go in order of seniority. So imagine you're Elena Kagan, our most junior justice, she wants to influence the outcome of the case. By the time she discusses, says one word, one single word about the case in their private conference where they're going to discuss and vote, every other member of the court will have said what they have to say and will have voted. So her only chance to influence the process is in oral argument to make pointed questions that kind of are intended to draw the other justices' attention to issues. That's not to say that Elena Kagan and the other justices don't ask real questions. They may have real questions. But increasingly, as the kind of quality of briefing in the Supreme Court has gone up, uh, there are fewer and fewer unanswered questions uh, and true ambiguities, uncertainties by the time they get to oral argument. There may be real questions about the boundaries of a party's rule and its implications and that sort of thing. But those two are generally made in the form of points by somebody who's hostile to you saying that your word, your uh, rule is unworkable. Or wouldn't your rule – so, you know, your rule, wouldn't it do this or that or the next thing? And then you, you have to say yes or no or try to soften that edge. 
And that's yep. a way to make the point that they don't like that rule. So, well, do you yep. do you see, uh, and maybe we can move to your own preparations, and and perhaps you can contrast this with uh, making arguments in U.S. courts of appeals uh, rather than the Supreme Court. But do you see your role as as helping justices who might be predisposed to your position, as helping them to introduce um, kind of rhetorically comfortable midway compromise positions i mean i'm having trouble articulating it but you know when when justices are fighting about lines and standards and 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 the parade of horribles that could happen if we adopted this rule or that rule uh one role you could imagine for the for the advocate is uh to help justices who want to um cast the effects of a particular rule in a particularly favorable light um I don't know if that's the way you see it or not, or if, or if you see it as more of just going up there and surviving uh, uh, mm-hmm. un- under the, uh, you know, uh, under whatever argument you're presenting. And maybe it depends on the case, and, and certainly I would imagine it depends on the court. But uh, what do you think? Sure. Well, at the Supreme Court, which is, you know, again, where most of my thinking about oral argument tactics comes from, uh, it's, you know, 90% defense and 10% offense. And that is almost always, but not always, there are going to be people who have trouble with your position and you're trying to stop them from persuading their colleagues that there really is a problem with your position. Uh, You're not actually, generally speaking, if you're, in my opinion, what you really shouldn't be trying to do is either A, uh, getting into an argument with them, uh, or B, actually trying that hard to change their mind. If they're hostile to you, they've made up their mind. Uh, it's very unlikely you're going to change it, but you can stop them from persuading someone else. What I really think, then you have the 10% of offense. And the 10% of offense for me is finding the one issue that I can persuade one justice on. When I started as an oral advocate, I went in and I was like, okay, I'm going to persuade the whole court that I'm right about my whole case. <laughs> in which case, in and I accomplished absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, rather, you have to have much more modest goals. I am listening for what's said and what isn't said by justices. I'm, you know, looking at body language, um, all of those sorts of things to try and figure out who is uncertain about what they want to do and what the question is on which they are uncertain. Uh, so I, um, and then I try and move that person while fending off (laughs) all the attacks from left and right. Well, I, yeah, I, I'm just, yeah, I'm just wondering, um, uh, is that, I have specific questions and more general questions and, and, uh, you know, more generally, if we were designing a system from the ground up, um, would you include an oral argument component? Uh, does it serve a, a valuable purpose um, at the Supreme Court? Yes, start sir. there. I, I absolutely would. I, there are, you know, there are times when people have real questions. It is a um, uh, a vehicle for them to talk to each other. I would change that. I would have them talk with each other more in advance so that they. Um, spend less time trying to persuade each other and try try and, you know, spend more time listening to the advocates uh, about their points. Um, but I would never eliminate oral argument, including because it's kind of an important public function for Americans to come and be able to see. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't get rid of it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because um, uh, I did have a chance to, um, when Justice Thomas came to visit the law school, to mm-hmm. kind of put the question to him about, participation in oral argument because he of course famously well, yeah, may, maybe there have been a few uh, contributions but not many at all in the last decade or so uh so he famously doesn't really participate in oral argument and the question of course is 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 why and um and i i kind of asked you know whether there weren't two reasons why he in particular should not um participate one being that his theories uh, for the resolution of a case oftentimes don't appear in the briefs and aren't part of the argument and whether or not there was some special obligation to raise the likely grounds for his own decision uh, in a yes. form in which they could be responded to. Uh, and the second was a more general one. And it was kind of this, uh, um, I, this idea associated with, among others, Alexander Michael John, that uh, 
um, that the court in some ways is the nation's teacher about certain issues. Maybe it's a, a less kind of um, a patronizing term might be the nation's reminder about important values. And there is an important, there could be, you know, this maybe brings into cameras in the courtroom, but uh, there could be an important um, yeah, civics lesson or an important uh, reminder to Americans about the ways that we decide important principles, uh, the ways that they're used. Um, and so, so oral argument is a chance to, to do that um, in a way that the, the briefs um, might, might not serve. And, and he found both of those, as you can imagine, unconvincing. Uh, and yeah. I think his basic response is that his job was to decide cases. You know, he saw it as a very kind of uh, um, uh, rather in, in non-grandiose terms. You know, he's, he's got a job and his job is to decide cases and do it uh, as best he can. But it's not to teach others or, or to pontificate or to show off. And there was that sense that, that part of oral argument involves um, showing off. Uh, so that's that's the way that he took it. I, um, so I'm afraid I couldn't reach him and persuade him to, to talk more about oral <laughs> argument, but uh, I'm sure I'm not the first to, to try to do so. Uh, um, but I don't know, but what do you think about those two grounds? Are those, you think, one, introducing ideas you have that don't appear in the briefs, is there an obligation on the part of the judge to raise that? I know it would be a nebulous op- obligation, but maybe it's there. And the second, what do you think about this uh, court as national, if not teacher, at least reminder? You know, I don't know that I think that the oral argument has a public educational function or that I would want it to because the oral argument I think needs to be very free-flowing and I don't think you want a situation in which the listener is taking the the questions as statements of position uh, as anything more than um, devil's advocacy that sort of thing. Yeah, testing Um, positions. I do think, yeah, I think that the the seeing the process uh, is a valuable one, and it has a important public role. Um, so I, you know, I'll, I'll agree with with that, and and I would, you know, I think it, it's important, and I would support cameras in the courtroom for that reason because it's so hard to get into the Supreme Court. Um, in terms of, you know, I think Justice Thomas in oral argument is a very interesting phenomenon. Um, he is exceptionally well prepared for oral argument which is the irony that nobody understands or few people understand his chambers works incredibly hard they write like 50 page bench memos they talk about it a ton yeah um and i do think that he's actually trying to listen to the lawyers and you know see what it is that they have to say and it may or may not be relevant to him but i do think that he i think that he believes what all of them believe and that is that there are too many questions but they really have a a dilemma in, in how it is that they're going to slow that down and and allow for more reasoned and elaborated discussion. Yeah, he did mention that that he you know was frustrated when they wouldn't let the lawyers speak. Um, yeah, and and but of course you have to have like a set of maybe you don't have to have it, but it would be more compelling to me if there was a good theory of oral argument's purpose that coincided with letting the lawyers give longer statements you know what does that add over the briefs but you can go back and listen to like the argument in loving versus virginia which i sometimes got my students to do in in Mm -hmm. property class because i think it's a great reminder of the kind of you know um what it's like to talk about these issues in legal language like this is the uh uh, anti-miscegenation case uh, that struck down um laws against uh interracial marriage and you had people getting up defending these in legal terms but i think that argument was like two hours and the lawyers talked at length without interruption um, so it is. Sure, a, if you go it back has and listen to, and, yeah, if you go back and listen to any of Justice Ginsburg's arguments, if you look at listen to Justice Scalia's one argument in the court, there are you know very few questions. And I, my point isn't that oh the lawyers are the geniuses here. Let them talk and you'll learn. But rather, um, you do learn some things after the briefing. You are able to conceptualize your case a little bit better. Um, you know, you you the lawyers do have more to add to the process than the court's uh, high level of activity suggests. So you, but but you wouldn't, or would you want uh, there to be considerably fewer questions than there are now? Because what you described before about your strategy of listening for that justice who is a bit uncertain about something, and that uncertainty might be a wedge for you into moving them a little bit on that one point. Um, 
that 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 assumes that they're actually interacting with you enough for you be to be able to perceive that they're uncertain about something. Whereas if they're that's, just sort of all sitting there sphinx-like, you're not going to have much of a read on that. That's true. Conversely, once I figure it out, I'd like a chance to... <laughs> you want the best of all worlds. I want them to talk until I say stop. <laughs> nice. And unfortunately, it works exactly the, the opposite, opposite of that. Yeah. So how how annoying are Justice Breyer's two minute hypotheticals? <laughs> when I, when I listen, I listen to well, lots of oral argument recordings. I love uh, them, by the way. Especially, We've talked about this before, <laughs> especially in recent cases. I've been listening to many more of the court's uh, oral arguments on audio because yeah. that's now so easy to do. Yeah. Um. And um. And I think it it gives you so many insights that you get beyond just reading the final opinion in the case. Uh. Especially for example, I'm I'm or even the transcript. Oh yeah, even the transcript. I'm an IP and antitrust uh, guy, bo- both both yeah. those things. And and in the in in the IP cases and the antitrust cases, again, there's just so many more layers uh, that are additional and that are interesting um, from the from the argument. Um, but I I repeatedly and I you know whatever I, I I'm sure I will never have the uh, the honor of meeting Stephen Breyer. It would be an honor. He's obviously a man of great accomplishment. Um, I routinely want to reach through my laptop and poke him in the eye um, because he just goes on and on and on. And I wonder, with so few minutes available, what the heck? This is why Joe and I get along, because I think you have the same reaction when I talk. <laughs> I'm, I'm also prone to ridiculous hypotheticals. I have a lot of sympathy for it. So. I mean, we do describe that as kind of his professorial um, uh, approach to oral arguments. So. Um, you know, I, I have to say, you said, you know, how much do I hate? I, I think that Justice Breyer, like all of his colleagues, is perfect. Let me be clear. <laughs> the it is a little hard to keep track. I mean, how do you? Yeah, how do you remember the beginning of it by the time the end arrives? I, I don't. I, I can't, not, and I'm not experiencing any stress. Yes, I'm in my house. Yes, mm-hmm. you can. It's not that. Come on. Uh, I'm. I have to agree. <laughs> I think it's hard, uh, having been there a lot. You know, there's just so much going on in oral argument. You have so many issues of all the other questions pending. There are like four different parts to it. Inevitably, a turtle, a snail, and a garage door opener. Make <laughs> um, or or and King Tut. Like, so or keeping or it a styrofoam-clad lawn chair on the sea. <laughs> that was just one of his hypotheticals, I think. Uh, this is the houseboat, which is just a lawn chair with styrofoam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that you know, you can deal with hypotheticals, but his, his it's the multi-part um you know long exegesis that makes it harder but he's not you know you, the thing that makes it better is that he is justice Breyer so helpfully will frequently tell you what he thinks is the problem with your case right um and just kind of lay it out there and say look here's what you know here's why i think you're wrong or here's the problem that i have tell me what you think and that's a blessing if it takes 2 minutes to do fine because somebody's giving you an honest shot at telling them or their colleagues why it is that you nonetheless should win or why the premise is wrong and those sorts of things. So I, you know, he adds an awful lot to oral argument. We're lucky to have him. That's a, that's a great bridge to one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I, I found this paper by uh, Joshua Stein on something I hadn't heard about before, but something in which has been tried in the California uh, intermediate courts, um, which are tentative written opinions and tentative yeah. oral opinions yeah, uh this is california state practice very yeah yeah um and, and so for the listeners i mean the idea is that the before oral argument the court will either you know in in the one case give you a written opinion and mm-hmm. i can tell you having clerked on the uh i clerked on the second circuit and the practice was for uh things that which the court thought before argument would likely go by summary order which means they were involved the relatively straightforward application of existing second circuit law uh that these would all be prepared in advance mm-hmm. not 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 filed of course because oral argument could possibly and and you know it, i can't say never you know they, they sometimes did change the outcome but uh um but these are ready but we of course weren't shared with the lawyers and, and the, the the practice here would be to give these to the lawyers so the lawyers would know what the court was thinking based on the briefs and then the oral argument would serve the purpose of convince us to change our mind or or to to keep our mind as it is if you uh were agreed with and then the oral opinions would be delivered from the bench at the time of oral argument so that instead of sitting there sphinx like here's exactly what we're thinking of doing um and now 
now go. What, what, I don't know if you think if, if that's even possible in the Supreme Court. Can you imagine how to change the practice to do that? Or if not, is it something the federal appellate court should, uh, the, the uh, non-Supreme Court, the, the courts of appeal should consider doing? I mean, I like the. I don't think the. It would take a lot at the Supreme Court, and the in, the institution is very fixed in its ways. But I'm a fan of the California practice. I think that you know, knowing where the judge is at and having a shot, like I said with Breyer, as you were jumping off from. Uh, and if you're going to lose, you're going to lose. Why not have a shot at changing the person's mind? Uh, it's awkward when you walk in and you've lost, <laughs> and you have to try and turn the judge around. But I'd rather know where I'm at. Uh, know what's been unpersuasive and be able to to take a whack at it. So I'm I'm a fan, but it's a very very unusual anomalous practice. And all of these you know courts have their traditions, and so there's you know there's very little practical prospect of anybody doing anything like that. Yeah, what's interesting and is that it is um uh it really all it does is it puts into words what is actually happening and it, that yeah, is that almost sure. all judges in almost all cases pretty much have their minds made up by the time oral argument begins do you want you want to ask one more no no that's fine you're sure positive okay all right tremendous well, well it's thanks a lot uh, tom for fun i really appreciate it i've enjoyed it and uh you know thanks for having me thank well, you for joining hope us. to have you on again soon see ya okay. bye bye right so i think appellate courts already are doing this in a sense in on the fly, yeah. The, the, By asking you to consider, right. okay, well, I'm gonna if I ruled for them in this way, how would it affect that thing? Yeah, and and in in that sense, it's uh, it it maybe resembles what is the very common practice and much more substantial practice in the trial courts, um, uh, where the at or you know the judge the, the judge and the advocates are orally working out like what the nature of an injunction is going to be. And it's kind of working out in real time what it's going to say. And maybe there will be a judgment from the bench, which is, you know, just the working out of what's been said thus far. Right. Um, by the time you get to the appellate court, that is obviously less common. Yeah. Um, but the briefs may be almost fully addressed towards say the merits and there, um, and, and one side may lose on the merits, but it, as you say, it's not clear how they will lose. There may be options in the parties because they spent so much time on X and, uh, X substantive issue yeah. and they had fewer pages left to deal with something right. else. Hadn't really briefed that issue. And, and, you know, at times the court will send letters to the party saying, you know, Please give us your views before oral argument on this, or, yeah. or maybe even after oral argument. It'll come or up. maybe the question and argument is: Look, you know, if we if we hold this way on issue A, do we even need to reach issue B? You'll hear that. Do we need to reach question? Right. It seems to me of quite frequently yeah. as a way to try to again pare things down. How do the pieces of the case interrelate to one another? Right. And and uh, what are the contingencies? Because you before anything happens, you have to address all contingencies, or you have to at right. least think about them. Um, whereas once one or two pieces of one or two dominoes have fallen, now suddenly you can say more about which track you're on. I agree. Oh, well, I agree. That blah 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 over here. But still, your feelings about about the role of that, how to prepare for that, whether if you're the engineer of the legal system, whether to include that. I think all that goes back to this. I think primary point that I still don't have a good handle on, and. Uh, um, although I have my views on it, uh, what is oral argument for? What's happening at oral argument? Uh, when judges ask the question that you ask, what you know, do we need to reach X, or or if we do uh, X, then how you know, what kind of remedy should we draft, or yeah. something like that? Um, they may be asking because they really don't know, right? It's possible. Uh, they may be asking because they want you know they came in with a certain probability of viewing and things a certain way, but are open you know, to at least a smidgen of persuasion. They may be asking because they want to tee it up in a particular way to show their colleague who they think is at least has a smidgen of persuadability right. uh, that uh, it won't be so bad if you go my way on this. Um, because if you do, we won't need to get to that other thing. Yeah. Or if you do, we will need to say that other thing that I know you really want to say right. or whatever. And And let me make the lawyer say this. Um, because otherwise I'd have to say Isn't it to you it myself. always all of these? I mean, you say you want the model, and, and it's, I mean, it seems to me it's always both in the sense that even if you do have, a, even if you walk in as a judge with a fixed view, um, because the event hasn't occurred yet, it's possible that it will unfold in a way that you don't expect. And even if you have 
no fixed view, you still have a probabilistic view. So it seems to me yeah. that it's always a blend of, you know, I'm genuinely trying to get more information or I would just stay home. Right. Um, and I'm always, in addition to getting more information, trying yeah. to soften the ground in the direction I favor. Yeah, I mean... Here's the thing, though. I mean, so I think... Why does it have to be either one of these or the other? Because we need to understand what's... I I think it's important to have an understanding of, under the current system at least, what is happening, and then what are the costs of achieving that thing which is happening? And if, you know, so if there are, you know, so first of all, if if it is almost always judges talking to one another through the lawyers, right, then you have to compare the costs and benefits of that system with a system which encouraged the judges to talk to one another directly. And maybe there is some benefit to the judges talking to one another through the lawyers. Those benefits could come in the form of decreasing pressures on collegiality, right? It's like, it's easier for me to try to tell you your position is really stupid by getting a lawyer to say that (laughs) rather than going to and saying it directly to you because we have to work together for the next two decades. Right. Um, But also maybe there's this public performance aspect of it, right? And, and and, uh, whether it's a teacher type thing or just um, uh, a chance for the public to see the public's business being done, uh, you know, different models. So that that's, that's a benefit obviously uh, as well. And we could debate the degree of that. Um, If we think given those systems that it's much, much cheaper to get the judges to talk to one another directly, then you might think, well, there's not really a place for oral argument, except in those cases in which the judges are actually asking because they want answers to questions. That, In other words, there's information which is, is very expensive for the judges to acquire, or even perhaps against the rules for them to acquire directly, but which is cheap or otherwise accessible to lawyers. And so you can get lawyers to give this information to judges. If that happens very rarely then is the whole scheme worth its costs? Um, well, that, and that's I, the I question. Don't think that's, I don't think that's the only question because it, it also requires us to know whether one can know the answer to that in enough advance, right? So if it turns out, for example, you said if it's rare, then maybe it's not worth the cost. Well, if it's rare and we know well in advance that which ones are the cases where it would be helpful and which are the ones where it wouldn't be? So mm-hmm. you could cr- so do some screening or tiering system or whatever, right? It, is it possible to know which ones it's helpful right. for in because, advance? Because I mean, if it isn't possible, or to the degree that it isn't possible, then then in part you're playing this. There's a lottery aspect to yeah. um, the fact that well, you know, you, you we pay this price to get the benefit. In part, we allocate the benefit in the process of paying the price. Right. Well, this is why some circuits don't give oral argument in every case. Right, um, they some have circuits to affirmatively re- decide to. Like I said, in the Second Circuit where I was, uh, every case that we heard got time for oral argument. Um, but the the judges, and I think it was just this the the um, whoever was presiding, but I don't know if this was could be you know uh, they could fax back and forth. They faxed at least on the days that I was in there. They they still might, uh, but they set the time. So one way of allocating the resources to set the time for whether it's five minutes aside or 20 minutes aside or 25 minutes aside. Um, uh, But that's rather coarse because in terms of controlling lawyer effort and and societal expense, if you're going to argue for if you've been given seven minutes aside or 20 minutes aside, it's not, you know, the the amount of preparation doesn't scale. You don't do three times as much preparation uh, for a 21 minute argument as for a a seven minute argument. You are prepared not to make a fool of yourself. For both arguments, right? right? You, do, Which, you probably do about the same. You amount. probably do about the same, and that's right. the that's it, the so point. So the issue is yes or no, not seven minutes versus fourteen minutes, right? And so when we're looking at input costs, like what are, what are people spending right. to engage in oral argument? The the principal agent problem at work here that takes us away from some societal optimum might be that lawyers are spending an excessive amount to avoid uh, personal embarrassment, and that clients are getting billed for that time. And the question is, is that avoiding personal embarrassment, is that lined up with the goal of advancing the client's interests? And depending on which of these models you think is at work, you might have a different hypothesis about that. Yeah. Right? I think the intensity of the scrutiny is also uh, probably probably ought to take into account the fact that the marginal cost of oral argument as a separate layer of process above and beyond the cost of briefing the case on appeal, and then that relative to the cost of, for example, conducting a full trial or even sophisticated summary judgment motion practice. The cost of an appeal pales in comparison, I I would imagine, in the run of cases. It's actually considerably cheaper 
um, than certainly than a trial, but even yeah. than a sophisticated summary judgment, at least in comp- the complex patent litigation that I was familiar with. Um, the the cost of an appeal is 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 uh, very low. So this is a question of analytical scope in a way, because if if your scope is the entire justice system and your goal is to save costs and and achieve more benefits, then, then you're nibbling. Then at this an is edge not low hanging fruit. Yeah, not at but, all. But if you take trial and 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 in and considerations of a matter initially as one set of things and appeals as another set of things and you just look at appeals then this is you know suddenly it seems more salient because it's a right. you know it's a question of, of costs and benefits well, and how do you make good decisions of, and you're talking about one half of the two main parts there's the briefing part and the argument part right so you know you're talking about half of the picture so if that's the only thing in the frame right the appellate frame yeah then of course it's con- it's significant well i can tell you for the supreme court discussion group um and in class i so I, a couple of cases i teach by playing the argument in class snippets of the argument and so if you're a huge proponent of, of the adversary system um and and you you you, you might uh i keep saying you might but you so one theory of it is that you get you kind of cut past the bs like you get to the to the nub of it sooner as if people are in a, in rapid fire in a rapid fire way battling back and forth right mm-hmm. i mean we can the judge can say i'm not i don't buy that or the the other advocate can say something which tees up the issue very uh, precisely and i can and it is true and and you also see um more open mindedness and consideration than you do in some opinions which i find more regrettable the opinions which try to make the case look easy Right, which I think is like one of the biggest vices, right? It's this kind of advocate style right. opinion, and which, and I think it's why again why listening to the arguments is so terrific because right. that hasn't happened yet. That right to, in the to the degree that it's fated to happen in any particular case, that sort of laundering of the rationale to make it seem inevitable, right, um, and easy, which is just a really awful, I think, an awful practice of judges. Um, I, not, that hasn't happened yet. So people are still talking, debating, asking questions. Even if they're trying to persuade their colleagues, they're doing that in the context where, again, we don't the, – the vote hasn't been taken yet. And and so the, – and the opinion hasn't been written yet. Yeah. And so it really is bracing in a way to be able to hear people. And I think even if, even if most of what they're doing is trying to persuade each other rather than trying to get an answer to something they don't know. Yeah, I agree. Because they're really, they're still kind of duking out what the possibilities are. Yeah, one case I did this on is Kilo versus City of New London, the the uh, eminent domain case mm-hmm. where the question was whether uh, uh, the use of eminent domain uh, for purposes of redeveloping a downtown in New London, Connecticut, um, in which that redevelopment would convey certain of the property or lease it to private entities, uh, is that a public use? if a big drug company is going to take over part of it and, and run it for profit. Um, and the opinions are the opinions are not bad at all. Uh, there's good opinions in there. Right. But This um, is Stevens, writes the majority, and right. says, yeah, this is a public purpose right. and Hawaii versus Midkiff and right. blah, blah, blah. And so you can cite some precedents and it, you can, oh, what's well, no big deal, right? Right, right. And Kennedy writes an interesting concurrence about when more scrutiny might be required, or at least suggesting that it could be. And, and then O'Connor writes a dissent, Thomas writes a, a dissent and on um, – on kind of more literalist grounds. But the the thing about the oral argument is that, um, you know, Breyer introduces an, a really interesting idea, and you really see in the oral argument how, what the case is really about, mm. right? The case is really about, you know, how to what extent should courts second guess the judgments of local legislatures? And is are we going to be concerned about, to the extent that we're going to put in place a rule which would use restrict the the uh, public use private use distinction as a way of kind of overturning exercise of, of a minute domain will that give too much power to courts to kind mm. of second guess land use policies of, of of local entities and and there's a real concern with what the proper judicial role is you know could we could we have a rule which limits us to considering only these kinds of cases or is that a slippery slope which is going to take us into becoming basically arbiters of, of the use of eminent domain generally? Um, shouldn't the locals and the states have some authority here? And how do we give them that, that authority without worrying about all kinds of ridiculous uses of eminent domain? And I really, There's a real struggle with that. And I, and I love that. Um, and he, he does do this frequently, sort of summing up um, with, with polarities what the values are are that are at stake you know if if we do it all that way we have this 
a problem and defect. If we do it this other way, we have that problem and defect. And so help me find the po- the point in between them that optimizes this c- clash or optimizes this competing set of values. He he's very good at saying things in that in that very way. Mm-hmm. And what was what annoys me, just to be clear. Um, what annoys me is you can do that without the goofy King Tut hypotheticals. I mean, he recently was going oh, yeah. on about King Tut and the gold. I and love the pyramid that hypothetical. The- it's exactly what I was thinking. Ugh, I, and I was when I was reading so that case awful. and when I started to read the transcript in that case, Blech. I had exactly. It wasn't King Tut, but it was almost. It was a precise scenario in mind. And I'm like, why doesn't anyone? And then he asks it, and I was like, ah, you know, it just it it fit. That was the question I had. I thought it was great and a ridiculous hypothetical. I mean, this is almost another show, ridiculous hypotheticals, whether in law school or at oral arguments. Like, the purpose of it, I think, or or a purpose is, first of all, I think in ridiculous ways, Joe. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when I think of examples, they are always absurd. I don't know why that is. I'm I'm a ridiculous person. What can I say? I'm a goofball. You have that in common with the character known as Socrates in the dialogues of Plato. He frequently uses what others in the dialogues think of as inane examples. Okay. I, I think I'll take that. And on that oh, comparison, you're a great company. we should end the entire show. In the t- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will take that. Um, uh, no, but like one of the points of, of, of the ridiculous ones is first of all, for, uh, did I say first of all's? I don't know. That's even worse than subsume. You I didn't. Said, I didn't. That was a, that was a slip of the tongue, you, not a. You not, said super subsumer. Yeah. Jeez. All right. Uh, no, but the um the uh it 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 reveals the underlying shape of the problem by kind of ridiculously pulling out these facts to the extreme. Like it reveals the underlying shape of it. For one, I know it's a little vague, but that's the way my mind sees it. But the the, the second uh, uh, purpose of it, it, maybe it helps to bring out some political valence. That the problem might have, mm, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. It, it probably can do that in a way that, um, or maybe deflect a valence, like uh, you know, get people to see something in a fresh way. Yeah, that feels le- like they're less certain how what the valence is immediately yeah. upon hearing that particular thing. I suppose I just I don't know why am I being such a critic? Uh, because I think that um, maybe maybe there is a third option. There's the you know, are we are we try are we really looking for answers? Because we've got sincere questions. Yeah. Are we trying to talk to one another? Yeah. Those are two options. That's the right um, answer, by the way. But go ahead. Yeah. And, and and I agree to the extent that that's, I my belief is both are happening in every case. Um, so, of course, I think that's part of the answer. Um, but but I think a, th- a third thing, and maybe my preferred one would be, um, to the extent that you're engaging in the second activity, show some restraint. And try to make it look like it's the first activity. Um, in other words, you, don't don't, don't embrace the drama and the gusto of we're all engaged here in a big costume drama because I don't think that's helpful. And I think some of the silliness that that Justice Breyer has allowed himself to indulge in from time to time is he's embracing the silliness of the drama a little bit too much. Yeah, I've got to disagree. Okay, I've got to disagree. Uh, um, First of all, I think that um, we should embrace our, our our the inner silliness that we all have, right? That this is that this is that we are at all, every moment. Well, but we are, at the, in argument, the mo- in the most solemn occasions, in the most important occasions. That, that's maybe the whole we problem. Can, the solemnity we, of it needs to be stripped away a little bit. We are real people deciding real questions, of course. And I'm not suggesting that people cultivate a a, a falsely thick sense of solemnity either. Uh, but but you you can you can you can reach a level of clownness that I think is not helpful to him or anybody else. Well, in the I world. haven't seen it, and, and it, I, I I've seen some really fun examples, um, some of which uh, veer towards the, toward the absurd. Um, but that in every case in which I've read them, I think you know I can appreciate that they are silly but are fun and 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 really do get at the issue. And like Tom said, right, it's like Breyer just lays it out. Here's what I'm worried about. He doesn't just lay it out, though. What I'm saying is he sometimes lays it out, and when he does that, it's great. Sometimes, though, he he launches into this very arcane and intricate thing. And and I now, now that I've listened to a bunch of these, what my, basically my, the par, a part of my brain goes, oh, okay, eventually this may end with, so what I'm really worried about is X. Right. And I'll right. just listen for that. Yeah, it's the kind of goofy yeah. story that I have to sit through till I get to that sentence. Whatever. Yeah, I couldn't disagree more. But 
But um, the one thing that I am sympathetic with the um, problem that the advocate faces with a multi-part um, question or a or a, a theory laid out in multiple steps, and and these are two different aspects of what seem uh, seem to be troubling you, or that Tom alluded to. Although he was quick to say, not troubling to him at all, that all the justices are perfect. Uh, uh, and that is, you know, the one is the ridiculousness aspect and the other is laying out a complex thing that has multiple parts and it's hard to keep in one's mind. And I'm very sympathetic with the advocate because if, if I were the advocate in the Supreme Court, I wouldn't be able to remember my own name. Right. <laughs> Me too. Right. I mean, I would be <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Right. You know, I, I'd probably drool a lot. I think yeah. Joe, I think I might drool. Yeah. Um, so I, might, I sympathize I with hurl. the fact that I would have trouble remembering all of the parts and how to respond to them. Um, but that's a different problem than the ridiculousness, also, which can, actually helps to remember. I think it can help. You to remember, remember King Tut even now. I do. That, no, you're absolutely right See? about that. Another, and this is probably le- of less concern in the particular case where that arose. It was, a, you know, it's a case uh, among corporations, and um, and so maybe there's you know less to worry about in some respects. And and now we're on a very different topic uh, th- that I sometimes get reminded of in these Briar hypotheticals, which is, you know, every once in a while you'll come across an opinion where a judge. Um, indulges in a, a kind of weird humorous style. Um, yeah. And that can bug me a lot, especially in instances where it's it's a criminal law case, for example, or right. it's it, it involves some other issue that is sort of has a lot of personal at stake. I mean, frivolity is just, you know, think of the parties. This They're not doing this because it's fun, and they're not doing it to entertain you. And I know you've had your job for 20 years, Judge, and so you, it's getting a little routine. But you know, writing rhymes into opinions or this kind of garbage—it's yeah, well, it's not, it's yeah, not a, worthy I, of you or of the par- and it's but not fair to the parties. Thing. That's a different thing. I I, I agree. No, but I, mean, it, it can, I know it's a different thing. But it, it is it can in some sense it has a it has a family resemblance that when you're when you're engaging in that kind of frivolity, right? Um, you can you you could mistakenly because that's not i don't think it's what's intended at all mm-hmm. but you could mistakenly be taken for thinking light of a thing that isn't that to some of the people involved is not a light thing right much it, is at stake for them right and especially as we get up towards the supreme court and the issues become a little bit more abstract they nonetheless for a few people in the united states are are uh, the opposite of abstract they are very concrete <laughs> with with concrete it's just that the supreme court's role is not about justice in individual cases ordinarily. Right. It is about setting policy that the other courts will put in place, right. uniform, all these other things which we can talk about maybe some other time. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, the manner in which they do that is through the resolution of individual cases that right. have consequences. And so there's a certain um, lack of empathy that might um, be, that, that can be exposed when we take things too lightly that have big consequences to the individuals uh, in the case. And maybe that danger is higher the more abstract the case gets as it wins its way up through the through the appellate system. But you know who we need to have on. Who? To uh, Because, I, I, um, uh, not only because I think he'll agree with me. Not only, <laughs> not only because of that. Uh, you know, uh, law prof uh, Jay Wexler, who writes about humor in the courtroom. Oh. Or he's written uh, about that. I mean, other things too, obviously. Right. Interesting. I think he'd be great. Really oh, great stuff. Yeah, that'd be terrific. Um, it's interesting that word because you say frivolity, but it rings up this issue of humor and opinions and in the courtroom. And pretty much any time someone uses the word, you know, should I introduce humor into my argument? The the answer has got to be no, because if you chose the word humor, there's something about the word humor which is not at all funny. <laughs> right, it throws a red flag. Yeah, it throws a flag that the person using it is not doesn't know what funny is. Now, I, look, I'm no comedian. People sometimes, you know, people laugh at me occasionally, but usually at me. <laughs> uh, but like you know throwing in jokes and uh, yeah. yeah no Blech. no no Joe, i'm a no what else we got uh nothing for today i think mm-hmm. hiatus baby we're going yeah we're going on vacation we're a little loopy uh what's the uh if people want to email us their gems in the interim where do they email us oral argument podcast at gmail.com what was that again? Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. And was that all one word? All, yeah, there's no funny business. Okay. We don't believe We're getting in right of that. to the point. Yeah. All lowercase. This isn't some oh, Justice Stevens hypothetical. It'll get there if it's not. But, you know, I know how. Don't don't email. I know how email works. I know. But uh, all one word, no dots, no dashes, okay. no nonsense. 
oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. We love suggestions. We love feedback. Yeah. I, I, I especially, you know, you know, if, if Joe said something wrong and hey. we need to correct him, oh. um, I would like, it's much better for me personally to do that by talking through you, the listeners. Yes. Let us use you as our lawyers. Indeed. That way we don't have to fight with each other. Although I think they do like it when we fight with each other. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, you don't have a lot of patience with me sometimes, Joe. Sometimes, but most of the time I have a world of patience. That's for you the, and for everybody. Yeah. Not. <laughs> let's, let's, you did the not thing. I did. Uh, did you see it's Bor- very out of fashion. That's very 1994. Did you see Borat? Um, I did see Borat. I know, did not like that. Do you remember the not thing in that? No. I didn't like Borat because he's... Um, I'm I'm going to cut this out. Okay. Why? Because I don't... I, I think it's embarrassing that you didn't like Borat. You know, I don't want to embarrass you. I mean, he's fundamentally... His, his, Sasha Baron Cohen is a genius, first of all. A, a genius. A, a comedy genius. Um, but... The dictator was not good. But the way he... A lot of the way his genius is expresses itself is in a form of bullying. Mm. And I really don't uh. find that funny. So maybe you know, uh, no, uh, I think it would take too long for me to explain why you're wrong. Okay, um, and we don't have the time for that. No, we got it. We, we're on we're on hiatus. <laughs> we are. I feel like it's already. I feel happened. like we should. I feel like we should have some beverages here, oh, <laughs> other than coffee. That, I wish that were true. We need some beverages. We need an ice cold beverage. Yeah, I wonder what kind. All right, a grain beverage, perhaps. All right, dear listeners, um, we will see you in a couple of weeks. But uh, of course, we've got excellent. Um, what do they call it? What's the word? Not, not rerun. What's the other word for that? Encore presentations. Encore presentations. Encore presentations of from oral the argument. Vault. Favorites from the vault. Oh, yeah. I'll be tweeting those out. Um, Excellent. Uh, from, the, from the Twitter sphere. Thank you. We done? Yeah. Okay. Take care.